We have the privilege this morning of welcoming Dr. Paul Jean and his New City congregation to worship with us. Paul will be uh, preaching uh, to us in a moment. He is a friend of mine in the area. He teaches New Testament at RTS uh, DC campus, and he's a, a church planter with his New City congregation. They are doing what we aspire to do, namely the work of church planting. And as we make plans, Lord willing, ourselves to plant a church in the 2014 calendar year, there is a lot we can learn from them. And so we are glad for uh, their ministry to us and glad to have Paul with us this morning. So Paul, uh, come on up and uh, let me pray for you uh, before you preach. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Paul and thank you for uh, the New City congregation. Thank you for the new, new work of the gospel that you have begun in and through them. And Lord, we thank you for their ministry to us here this morning. I pray that you would give Paul that freedom, that liberty that comes from knowing that he is bringing your word to us and that our hearts will be open and receptive and teachable and, and eager to learn from you in your word this morning. Lord, we're grateful for this time and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you again for having me and my congregation. We're so glad to be here. On the whole, my church was excited to come, except when they found out I was preaching. Because they, they were looking for James, who I initially described as the Australian preacher. But uh, people corrected me. They said he was Irish, now he's Scottish. And who knows what he will be in the coming weeks. But uh, thank you for having us. We are so glad to be here. Uh, we have been really encouraged. Uh, James and David, in particular, have been uh, so warm and kind towards us. And that's not uh, in any way an exaggeration. Our church has been very moved that uh, a church of your size, uh, your experience, would uh, be so gracious towards us. And that's something that we don't take for granted. And we do hope that we can do good ministry together uh, in the coming years. And uh, our presence here would be a blessing to uh, the greater Northern Virginia area. Uh, Today I wanted to speak about hope because it's just right around that season when people get hopeful. You notice that the gyms, if you go to a gym, get busier. People get hopeful that this is the year I will get in shape. And uh, I wanted to address maybe three types of people. One, uh, the first group is those people who tend to be hopeful. Uh, They're the type that, and maybe this is you, as the new year rolls around, you start to make resolutions, okay? You're like this. And I'm sort of like this. I make a resolution every five years. That that way... um, I, can, I have a good track record, so it's been about five years that my resolution this year is uh, I'm going to stop eating french fries. Uh, that's something I've been thinking about for a long time, but maybe that's you. Maybe this is the year where you're saying, you know, this is the year I'll finally meet someone. You know, I've been going on a lot of dates, uh, going to a lot of speed dating events and so forth, and this is the year uh, I'll finally meet someone. Or maybe you're the type that says, this is the year our marriage will take a U-turn. It'll be different. It'll be better. Finally, you know, we'll understand each other. and We'll communicate well and so forth. Or maybe you're the type that says, finally, this is the year. Things will be better at work. Things, you know, I'll get the promotion. I'll finally be recognized. And so there is that group that tends to be very hopeful. And some would suggest this group tends to be hopeful in a sort of naive way. Because that moves to the second group. And the second group is the group that you might say used to make resolutions. But now they're more cynical, pessimistic, realistic, depending on who you ask. And they say, nothing changes. No one changes. We're just here. Nothing will get better. 
And those type of people, if that's you, they're not filled with hope. And in a lot of ways, they are hopeless. And then there's the third group, which is a little bit more subtle. They feel like they're neither hopeful nor hopeless. They're just busy. They're just trying to make it through the week, make it through the day. If you have children, you, you, you know what I mean. You wake up, and it's chaos as soon as you wake up. Work, you get back, and there isn't a moment's rest. And for you, uh, there isn't that kind of, if I can say from a Christian perspective, the kind of excitement, expectation that should characterize those who have Christian hope. And so with that, I wanted to reflect with you as one church, as one family in Christ Jesus, what it means to have gospel hope. And lest you think that this is some sort of arbitrary choice, you notice um, in Paul's other letters, Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, he begins by praying a great prayer. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. Why? That you, what does he ultimately say? So he says, so that you might know the hope of your calling. And so it's that important that we understand, especially as we begin this new year, uh, what gospel hope means. And my hope is that you would be deeply encouraged. Those of you who might have, um, if I may say, uh, more uh, surface-level hopes, that you would see you have something much deeper, something much better. Those of you who have lost hope, you would once again be filled with the hope that Christ Jesus has made possible. So there are three uh, quick reflections we'll have, well, relatively quick. First is the power of hope or the relevance of hope. So that's number one, the power of hope. Number two, the content of hope. What is our hope? And finally, the number three, the application of hope. What difference does it make? So number one, the uh, power or the relevance of hope. The Apostle Paul begins this section by saying, I consider that these sufferings of this present time are not worth compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, to some, this sounds incredibly inspirational, Still to others, this sounds um, almost insulting because it seems as if Paul is minimizing the sufferings that we go through. And bear in mind, he's not simply speaking about sufferings we endure as servants of uh, the gospel. He's simply saying living in this world, it's terrible. It's, it's sometimes so depressing. You know, uh, do you know people maybe, again, maybe you're like this. I know married couples or People who are engaged and you ask them, do you want to have a family? And they say, absolutely not. Who in their right mind would want to bring children into this apparently God-forsaken world? And so Paul is talking about that kind of suffering. But he draws out this important principle. He says this, human beings, creatures, we are inevitably people whose um, present experience is shaped by our view of the future. That's what he's saying. He's saying the future inevitably, whether or not we realize it, conditions and influences the way we process our present moment. Now, um, you might be thinking, well, that's more for deep people, philosophical people who are very thoughtful, but you know this as well. Don't you know of people, maybe you were in this situation where for a while you were in a very less than ideal job situation. I know many people in finance, law, Uh, medicine and now coming to the D.C. area in politics who for many years had to go through a tough residency or at their firm, just basically, they were the bottom of the totem pole. When you ask them, listen, you're not even getting paid very much. You're not being recognized. How are you enduring this? What have they said? What have you said? Well, it's tough right now, but in a few years, we'll cash out, become partners, and we'll get an appointment, and we'll begin to make good money. You see, even then, they're illustrating exactly the principle that Paul has in mind here. 
that our present experience of whatever we're going through is inevitably conditioned, influenced, and shaped by our view of the future. And this is part of the reason why the English translation of the term hope doesn't serve well what the Greek, uh, Greek, transla- what the Greek term is. You see, in English, when we say hope, we often mean it as expressing desire that may or may not happen. Like if you ask me, Paul, do you hope that this year um, you'll, you'll get healthier, that your church will grow? I say, I, I hope so. Whether or not that may happen remains to be determined. I hope so. But you see, in the Bible, whenever it uses the term hope, in the New Testament in particular, it's talking about a sure confidence in the future that in turn dictates the way we respond in the present. I had never heard um, messages about Christian hope until about five years ago. I was listening to a series by Dr. Tim Keller, and there's this one illustration he gives that uh, just really captured the point. He said, suppose you have two people. They have menial jobs. Uh, they, for a year, no, voc- no vacation. They just have to work long, difficult hours. Person A, at the end of this laborious, difficult year, is promised about uh, $10,000 for all his labor. Person B, who does exactly the same thing, who is exactly under the same circumstances, is promised not $10,000, but $10 million. And then Dr. Keller asked this great question. Do you not think that their present experience of their circumstances would be radically different? The first one would be grumpy. Who knows if he would make it through the year? The second one, regardless of how difficult the work might be, would be able to persevere. Perhaps he would even sing a tune, you know, whistle, because he knows what is yet to come. See, that that really stuck with me. And again, that's driving the point home that, you see, you and I, as much as we think that we are responding to our circumstances, the Bible tells us something very insightful. It says we are responding to our present circumstances in view of what we believe our future hope is. And the reality is, friends, we are people, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, you cannot possibly live without hope. You can't live without hope. Um, in my undergraduate years, I had a chance to read some writings by Viktor Frankl. Uh, some of you may be familiar with his writings. And he was actually a student of, of Freud and Adler, but he eventually broke away from them because he thought that their philosophies, their outlooks, their approaches to psychology were too reductionistic because he believed in the importance of meaning. And he wrote this uh, very insightful commentary about how in the West, we used to struggle for survival But now that we are relatively affluent, we we no longer struggle for survival. We struggle with what we're actually living for, meaning. And he survived the Holocaust. And and after surviving the Holocaust, one of the questions he wrestled with was this. How is it that some were able to survive just unimaginable horror while others quickly died or just uh, colluded with the enemies and so forth? He posed this important question. And he said the difference was whether people had hope. And he has this one example that's cited by many people. A friend of his, a musician, um, had a dream. And this friend believed that it was a revelation from God that the war would come to an end, I think, on March 30th, 1945. And he was convinced, again, that this was a revelation from God. And as a result, regardless of how bad, how difficult the circumstances were, as none of us can imagine and hopefully none of us will ever have to imagine, he nevertheless was able to endure it. But as the date came closer to March 30th, and as it became abundantly clear that the war would not come to an end, uh, Viktor Frankl says that his friend, March 29th, suddenly became ill with a fever, 
fever. On March 30th, he、uh, collapsed, he lost consciousness, and the next day he died. You see, and Viktor Frankl was saying the, the thing that made all the difference, and all the prisoners knew it, was what made the difference between people who would survive and endure and people who wouldn't was whether they had hope. And that sounds, I guess, maybe lofty to some, but you know it. You know this as well. You know this in terms of, let's say,、uh, let's suppose you're single, and,、uh, you know, after a while, let's say you've tried all these online. You know, dating sites. You've gone on speed things. Your friends have set you up. Your family has set you up. You've done anything and everything. What happens? You know, when you when you begin when things begin to fail, you begin even if you don't actually die, you begin to die in your soul. For those of you who have been married, and you know, I'm confident, even at a great church like McLean Presbyterian Church, just like at my church, there are couples that have been fighting for many years, and you have perhaps reached the point when you're like, our marriage is never going to get better. Our spouse is never going to change. It's always going to be this way. What happens? Do you notice there's a deadness in your soul? Or those people who apply to jobs, and maybe some of you have been in this situation. You send out so many resumes, you've lost count of how many, and nothing comes. And what happens? Eventually, you just give up altogether. Because we, regardless of what your religious, spiritual disposition is, we are people who need hope. And、uh, before we move on to、uh, the second point, I just want to ask you to consider something. See, I have said we are shaped by our future、uh, vision in the present, but not many of us are fully aware of what our future vision is. See, but I would ask you to consider what you actually believe. And for those of you who perhaps are searching spiritually, something I would ask you to consider is this: if you believe that we came from nothing, and ultimately We are destined to nothing, right? There is a deep sadness and emptiness that inevitably comes to you. And the irony is that many Christians or professing Christians may experience this as well. But for those of you who who are not sure, I, w- I would consider, you know, if you believe that we came from nothing and ultimately we're destined for nothing, there is a deep sadness and emptiness that comes. You know, I had a friend in my undergraduate who was the most consistent atheist I've ever come across. And he would ta- he would tell me what vexes me, what annoys the heck out of me.、Uh, going to extremely liberal campuses when people speak about the inherent worth of humanity, he says that's absolutely ridiculous. There's no inherent worth. We came from nothing. We're going to nothing. We're, we're nothing. And he says, and I hate it when I go to funerals and people say, I'm sure this person is now at a better place. He says that's just、um, that's sentimentality. That's nothing. See. This is why our vision of the future inevitably shapes our experience now. And he was someone who I would say, to be honest, you asked him, "What's your philosophy in life?" He would say, "I'm just here for the ride. I'm just here, letting it go." I want to I want to offer to you、uh, this encouragement. The Bible says we have a much more glorious future, a future filled with tremendous hope that can radically change the way we experience life here and now. So that's、uh, moving on to number two. What is this hope that Paul,、um, Paul speaks of, and what the gospel tells us of? Now,、um, here I'm going to quote somewhat from an author that I, by quoting him, I'm not suggesting I endorse everything he writes, but I think when it comes to resurrection, when it comes to glory, N.T. Wright is actually very helpful, and、um, he makes this very astute point. He says when many of us think about future glory. 
we have these strange Western Disney ideas. Like last night, um, if any of you were watching ABC, uh, Little Mermaid was uh, playing, which, as an aside, has got to be the worst movie to ever show your child. You know, it's it's basically about how. Anyway, that's a separate story. <laughs> but um, you know, I was looking at the king, and you notice uh, he always ha- the king always has a certain mold. He, he's pretty he's pretty well built. He has a long beard, and he looks uh, wise. And many of us, when we think about heaven, we think about heaven in those terms that God is sitting on a huge uh, throne. By that point, we are sort of hobbits relative to the size of God, and there are clouds everywhere, and so forth. And see, N.T. Wright says, we have all these strange notions of what our future glory will entail. But he says this, and this is what Paul says in this passage. Twice, Paul references glory. But at the very end, he says, the redemption of our bodies. And N.T. Wright astutely and accurately says, you see, our future glory will be a bodily mode of existence. We will be physical beings in a physical dwelling place all of which will be renewed. And borrowing from C.S. Lewis, he basically says this. He says, you see, many people think that our glory is about becoming less physical, more spiritual, as if the body is bad and the spirit is good. But he says, no, in fact, when Jesus returns and when our bodies are renewed, we will become even more physical, even more substantial. And uh, forgive me for using this illustration, but... um, I unapologetically, I love uh, comic books, and uh, it's become popular now, so it's socially acceptable. But, um, (laughs) you know, the way I think about it is, I'm sure everyone knows Superman. And if you consider Superman, is he a physical being? Yes. Is his body like ours? The answer would be yes. But isn't he so much more? The answer would be yes. He's more physical. His senses are better. He's um, impervious to the things. He never gets sick. Hallelujah. And, you know, he has all, he has great vision. The Bible says when our bodies are redeemed, right, we will become not less physical, but even more physical when our glory comes. And this, um, friends, shouldn't this encourage us? I mean, um, haven't you noticed over the years, like you used to have five senses, you have maybe 4.5 now, and as each year goes, 3.2, and uh, one of the things I love preaching at a larger church is people ask, do you ever get nervous? I said, no, I can hardly see what people are doing. I just don't wear my glasses. And uh, I was reminded recently, I'm losing my senses. Uh, My three-year-old son, he tries to talk to me. And I, I said, I can't hear you. And after a while, he goes, what's wrong with you? You know, like, you know, what's wrong with your hearing? And I said, it's sin and decay. And he's like, oh, all right. No, but, um, <laughs> but the Bible's promise, the gospel's promise is that our bodies will be redeemed. And I want to encourage especially those of you, that really hits home for you. Your body is frail. Um, you, you've experienced many years of just physical brokenness. And the hope of the gospel is not that somehow finally your body will be done away with and you will be a soul and you will be with the Lord. The promise of the Bible is that your body will be renewed. It will be redeemed. And not only that, do you notice in this passage it says, and the creation itself waits for for the revealing of the sons of God because physical renewal is not just for us as individuals, but all of creation will be renewed. 
You see, no longer will creation itself be subject to decay. Instead, all of the world, it's not as if God created in Genesis 1 and everything has gone awry, awry, so now we're going to go to heaven, uh, forget about creation altogether. The promise of Scripture is not only that our bodies will be renewed, but also all of creation will be renewed. And what's the connection between the two? If I may uh, read someone at length, this is what N.T. Wright says. I, I, I came across this in his book, um, Surprised by Hope, and it's just so perfect. This is what he says. Why will we be given new bodies? According to the early Christians, the purpose of this new body will be to rule wisely over God's new world. Forget those images about lounging around playing harps. Thank God. There will be work to do, and we shall relish doing it. He goes on to say, All the skills and talents we have put to God's service in this present life, and perhaps, too, the interests and likings we gave up because they conflicted with our vocation, will be enhanced and ennobled and given back to us to be exercised to his glory. This is perhaps the most mysterious and least explored aspect of the resurrection life. But there are several promises in the New Testament about God's people reigning, and these cannot just be empty words. If, as we have already seen, the biblical view of God's future is the renewal of the entire cosmos, there will be plenty to be done, entire new projects to undertake. In terms of the vision of the original creation in Genesis 1 and 2, the garden will need to be tended once more and the animals renamed. There are only Im- these are only images, of course, but like all other future-oriented language, they serve as true signposts to a larger reality, a reality to which most Christians give little or no thought. What he's basically saying is creation will be renewed, and the reason why you and I will have new bodies is because we will reign with Christ and we will be working we will be investing our time and talents. Heaven will be so much more. The new earth will be so much more than just sitting around and possibly engaging in worship 24-7, as people often think. We will be active. The things that you love to do, you will continue to do, and you will be able to do it at a capacity that you could never do before. See, this is why Paul says, this is the hope of our glory. And two um, quick applications here. One is this. C.S. Lewis, um, he has this great line. He says, there are those who say, suffering in this, uh, in this life, no amount of future bliss can atone for it. And he says, but what people don't recognize is that when heaven is attained, it will somehow work backwards and turn your agony into glory. And this is what C.S. Lewis means. See, what's so unique about Christian hope is that it's not merely consolation, but it's restoration And that's why our joy is that much greater. Again, we talked about secular views of life. We came from nothing. uh, We're headed to nothing, so there's no consolation. In many Eastern philosophies, our soul is taken up and we become part of the all-soul, and our bodies are left behind. And then even in terms of many popular views of, I guess, paradise, uh, basically, you get the life you never had. It's just consolation. But the Bible's approach is so different. It's not just consolation. It's restoration. And because it's restoration, because it's the restoration of what was lost, what was broken, the joy is that much greater. This is what that means. Uh, my wife and I are, and our family, we just got back from uh, vacation. And the night before we were flying back, I was um, in the hotel lobby checking, uh, checking in, in advance, and I lost the keys 
um, my keychain, which was the keys for the rental car, and then the car at home. And immediately, I was like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Um, we were far away from the airport, um, how we were going to get back home, and all these thoughts began to cloud my mind, and I was getting frustrated. And then the security officer comes in and he says, sir, did you drop this, these pair of keys? And you will, have, you will never meet someone who was so happy to find his keys again. I just was so happy, and I was about to hug him. He says, we're cool. And so, so he uh, said, thank you, thank you so much. And you see, even, and we've all had incidents like that, and many of us have had it on a much you know, deeper level, but the loss of something is somehow taken up when that something is restored. And the joy that you experience is that much greater because of the initial lostness, you see? And that's what the Bible, that's why Paul has the audacity to say that our present sufferings are not worth compared with the glory that will be ours because all the suffering you have in this present life will somehow mysteriously be taken up by God. Heaven will work backwards and your joy will be that much greater. Are you encouraged? I hope you are. Heaven, again, is not merely consolation. It is the restoration of what was lost and therefore it's that much greater. The second application, very quickly, is this. Um, I don't mean to be a sort of um, controversialist here, but I, I, you've heard this, and you know, I've heard this, and to some extent I've taught this. I think there is a better answer to the question of how are you doing. Now, the popular answer is um, if you've been in church long enough, you learn the lingo, and it goes something along the lines, how are you doing? And you're supposed to say, better than I deserve, something along those lines. And um, I'm sure you've practiced it um, in, in some shape or form. And, you know, the more I've thought about that, I, I, get, I get what's going on there. But there is something about that response that doesn't quite capture the dynamic we see in this passage. You see, suppose there's a person who has just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. The person will die in three months. Or let's suppose there's a person that unexpectedly loses a loved one, a person that suddenly is let go of work and has a full family to support. There's something um, a bit uh, cold if you ask, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. (laughs) There's something there that doesn't quite capture the suffering of cancer, the suffering of losing a loved one, the suffering of suddenly uh, losing your job and not knowing what will happen next. I think the better response, and it's more succinct as well as this, well, I'm hopeful. See, because when you say you're hopeful, you capture on that one hand what Paul says. There is real, deep, profound, profound, pervasive suffering in this life. But because of what Jesus has done, even compared to that glory, these sufferings pale. And so I am hopeful. I want to encourage those of you, as we are about to begin this new year, you know, sometimes as Christians, we feel guilty acknowledging that we're going through difficult times, and we almost feel tempted, even though we don't feel like saying, better than Isaiah, everything's fine, you know, hallelujah, I love Jesus, but I think the biblical response might simply be, I'm hopeful. There is immense suffering, disappointment in my life. Sometimes it is so deep, yet I know that our future glory is that much more profound. I'm hopeful, which leads me to uh, our last point, the application of, um, of gospel hope. Three uh, groups I want to address. First is this, 
And I know this might sound um, somewhat negative, but the first is this. I think the worst situation you can be in is not even lacking hope. Like, for instance, let's say you're seeking, you're not sure you're a Christian, and so you don't have this hope. As bad as that situation is, I think the worst possible situation um, is for people who profess to be Christian, but in reality do not have this hope. Because all of life, you think you have it, but when you don't. And this passage, Paul, there's this line that's very interesting. He says, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait, uh, await the redemption of our bodies. Uh, Doug Moo, who's written an excellent commentary in Romans, he says this, the participle here should be understood as causal. And what he's saying is, if you have the Spirit of Christ, who is the first fruit, if in fact he resides in you, then you will groan. He says you can't groan unless the Spirit is actually inside of you. And this is uh, Paul's way of saying is, um, if you have no longing for the redemption of your body, if you find that your soul doesn't naturally gravitate in terms of our future glory, you should be concerned. You should be concerned, even if you're here, and maybe you've been a professing Christian for many years, but if there isn't that sense in you of something greater yet to come, I want to encourage you, 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 you should at least explore your heart, explore your soul. And this makes perfect sense. You know, are you the type that uh, during this holiday season, perhaps people are cooking in the kitchen, perhaps you're cooking in the kitchen, but let's suppose you're not, and you're the kind like me, you like to sneak in, see what's being made, and you taste something, you're like, mmm, that's wonderful, let me have more. And they say, wait, wait. And you can't wait because you, you can't anticipate the final meal. That's what Paul is saying here when, when he says, if you have the Spirit, there is something in you. You groan. You long for future glory, for the redemption of your body. And friends, if, if that's not you, if, if, you're, if you can honestly say, wow, that so does not describe me, I would encourage you, consider whether you have ever made the gospel your hope, whether Jesus, in fact, is your Lord and Savior. Secondly, uh, I want to address those of you who, who are Christians and uh, the Bible in Titus chapter 2 says the way we anticipate hope is there's a twofold aspect to it. We reject sin and we pursue a life of good works for the glory of God. There's that dynamic. And we could do an entire message on this. But I want to just encourage you to think along perhaps a more subtle way. One way we can sin is by living in unbelief, as if God is not redeeming all the cosmos. And you see, one of the ways we can sin is simply by entertaining and continuing to believe in that thought that nothing will get better. And you, you know who you are. You're resigned and you're confident that, you know, this world is going to come to an end and nothing's ever going to change. My life is always going to be bad. See, that's something I wouldn't invite you to repent of. But then when it comes to pursuing good works, many often fall into the trap of thinking, I have to go to seminary, I have to become a pastor, I have to become a missionary. That's not at all the case. If I can um, just read one more quote from uh, N.T. Wright. He has this great quote that I hope will encourage you. He says this, The point of the resurrection or the redemption of our bodies is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. God will raise it to new life. He goes on to say, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, 
caring for the needy, loving your neighbors as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little bit more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Because God is renewing the physical world, that means what we do with our physical bodies in a physical way matters. And I want to encourage you to approach the very work you are doing with that sort of hope. Don't feel like, oh, need to live for God's kingdom. Let me go be a pastor. Let me go be a missionary. No, do the work that you're doing, but do it infused with hope that God cares and he will renew the physical, uh, physical reality. And finally, I want to offer a word of encouragement for those of you who are perhaps seeking. And um, this is the word of encouragement I would offer to you. You may be sitting here thinking, wow, this is great, but this is sort of world-changing. If, I, if Christian hope becomes my hope, everything changes, and it's a scary thing. I would, uh, in closing, ask you just to consider this. You notice how Paul says, Christians, we await our adoption. And this is the irony of it. See, adoption during that time was done by people who had no heir, no child to pass on all that they had. And so they would bring in a, an adult uh, male, and that person would be adopted. But God, he had a son. He, he had an heir, Jesus Christ. But what Paul says in Ephesians 1 is this, that Jesus went to the cross. God sent the son that we might become his inheritance. In other words, what was Jesus' hope? Why, why did he endure all suffering? Why did he endure the cross? So that you and I might become adopted into the family of God, that we might become co-heirs, that we might be called sons and daughters of God. You see, the extent to which you see that Jesus made you his hope, he was the reason why, uh, he, you were the reason why he endured so much suffering, the extent to which you see that and you come to believe that, to the extent to which you do that, he will become your hope. And I would encourage you, for many, uh, it doesn't happen overnight. I would encourage you, continue to come out to McLean Presbyterian Church. Hear excellent preaching, hear great teaching, touch the gospel, experience the gospel in the context of small groups. Make Jesus your hope, the one who gave up all things so that you and, my, you and I might be brought into the family of God. Let's come to God in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we ask you at this time to help us as we are about to begin a new year. What we need more than we realize is a redeemed and an accurate and a biblical and gospel vision of hope. Not hope that simply this year will be better. I'll meet someone or my marriage will be better. And for those who are hopeless, who feel like nothing will get better, we need true gospel hope that says someday when Jesus returns, our bodies will be renewed. No more subjection to death and decay and disease. All things will be made new, and with Christ, we will reign in glory. As we begin this new year, give us that kind of hope. Not the kind of hope that looks more like stoicism where we pretend nothing affects us, but the kind of gospel hope that Jesus has made possible so that in the face of suffering, in the face of long suffering, in the face of disappointment, brokenness, we might be able to echo that in Jesus, we count the sufferings of this present time, of this present time 
not worth compared with the glory that will be ours. Reveal this to us. Encourage us as we begin this new year. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.